Hey guys, how are y'all doing this week? My name is Bree, and you are listening to The Macaw Millennial. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a quick thank you. I saw there was a um, another uptick in listeners uh, over the last week, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you like what you've been hearing. Um, before we get into Lizzie Borden Part 2, I just wanted to do a little reminder. Um, if you guys really like what you're hearing, if you wouldn't terribly mind leaving some reviews or ratings and um, definitely some case recommendations too in those reviews on whatever platform you're actually listening to this podcast on, it would be really, really helpful um, just so I have a little something to go off of. So we are going to go ahead and get started. So let's go ahead and jump right on in. When we last left off, the police had been trying to determine a timeline and trying to nail down suspects or um, at least a possibility of what could have happened. Um, And the funeral had been held. As soon as the funeral had uh, proceeded, the police went into the house and they began tearing it apart, trying to find any possible evidence that they could scrounge up, um, given how the crime scene was left. So one of the things I learned was that when the police took on the house, in addition to this, they had also told the hearse that they could take the bodies to the cemetery, but they were not to be buried. They would need to be autopsied. So they waited until the family had left the house, took the bodies all of the way to the cemetery. There was a few moments of silence where everybody kind of congregated on the area and, you know, kind of said their goodbyes and so on and so forth before um, everybody just left. And this was the point where police kind of officially began their investigation. Um, I wanted to throw in this little side note, too, that I found that apparently fingerprint analysis was a method that they wouldn't be able to use in the United States for at least another decade. And, you know, a a lot of the time that's used as a big indicator to a crime, and it was completely unavailable in this situation. Now, while the bodies were being autopsied, police decided to bring Bridget and Lizzie back in for questioning. During her questioning, Bridget made it a point to tell police that she had never been happy help for the Bordens. She insisted that on several occasions she had wanted to leave, and had it not been for Abby Borden, she would have. She even went so far as to call the late Mrs. Borden a lovely woman, quote. Um, Bridget was said to have given precise and a straightforward account of what happened that day from her perspective and told investigators that after she had cleaned the dishes from breakfast, she washed the outside windows, spoke with the neighbor's maid, then went inside to continue working until she finally went to lay down. Because if you remember, she wasn't feeling well that morning. She had been vomiting from that supper the night before that made everybody sick. Um, Sometime after she had went to lie down, Lizzie had called out for her, expressing her father was hurt and needed Bridget to retrieve Dr. Bowen. She did relay the part about seeing Lizzie in passing earlier that morning to the police, um, but she couldn't say where she had been aside from that one encounter. After they finished questioning Bridget, she was said to collect up all of her belongings from the house and she went to go stay with a cousin who was living several streets over and vowed never to return to the house again. Um, Lizzie at this point knew she was in some really hot water now that they dismissed Bridget and she actually sought out the family lawyer, a man by the name of Andrew Jennings, who accompanied her to the police inquest. In this one instance, I think Lizzie was very smart to go ahead and do this and probably ahead of her time for going ahead and doing this first. 
Um, and I have to wonder if that's what ended up saving her in the end, more or less, because she refused to go in there and be questioned by somebody without her lawyer present who would know her rights much better than she would at this point in the game. Um, I just thought it was so interesting that uh, she would do that. However, you could look at it as the opposite side of the coin, too, where did she do it because she knew she had no chance in hell of not being found guilty otherwise? Who can say? I just think that she really knew her stuff to go forth and call Andrew Jennings before even being questioned. So, for investigators, their main objective at this point was to try and pin down an opportunity and a motive to the crimes. And at this time, this was reportedly not exclusive to Lizzie being the one who committed them. So, even though she was kind of in their sights, they weren't dead set on her being the one to commit the crimes, at least not yet. They had asked if Andrew and Abby had any enemies, and Lizzie had said that there were men who may have been on the outs with her father, but Abby had no enemies. She did, however, add that Lizzie and Abby had in the past been known to seriously butt heads and had never totally recovered from a disagreement about five years before, but remained appropriate, in her words. And we're going to get more into the details of that disagreement that had happened five years earlier. Um, I know it's been talked about in other podcasts and stuff. But going back to the book that I referenced in the first part of the podcast on Lizzie um, and reiterating here, I kind of found out a little bit more interesting details to that. And I think, at least for me, it helped kind of change my perspective on Andrew and, Andrew, <laughs> Andrew and Abby at least a little bit. So Lizzie had been questioned about what she had been wearing the day of the murders, and we're going to go into more detail with why that's important too. And Lizzie had said that she had been wearing a navy blue blouse and dress, but had changed into a pink one by the afternoon. They asked if that was the only time she had changed that day, and she had told them yes. I can see a couple reasons as to why maybe she changed. I mean, she found her father who had been covered in blood, and I can't imagine it was localized to just the couch. However, it could also be seen as a kind of suspicious activity, too. Did you do this? Did you get blood on your dress? And that's why you changed into something different by the time police finally arrived on scene? Again, who can say? I want to talk, too, a little bit about John Morris. So, police didn't totally, you know, forget that he was around. They did bring him in and they had asked him if the visit he had made to the house was expected or unexpected and what kind of terms he was on with Mr. Borden. Um, he expressed that it was not uncommon for him to visit in the slightest and had been visiting in the area at least for the past year, even if he hadn't been staying with the Bordens for that entirety of the time. Um, they then asked Lizzie what she had been doing that morning. She explained she had ironed her handkerchiefs and read a magazine, then maybe ate some cookies while she was waiting for the iron to heat up. She said she was under the impression that Abby was upstairs turning over the guest bedroom from Morse having used it because they were expecting company on Monday and wanted the room ready. It was right at this time that the first loose thread in Lizzie's story appeared. She claimed she had been downstairs when Andrew came home. But if you can recall, Bridget distinctly remembered hearing Lizzie laugh from the second floor while she was struggling to get the door open and she cussed. So, when this was brought to Lizzie's attention, she quickly said, Oh, I don't know. I guess I'm just talking in circles. You guys have been grilling me all day. I, I don't even know up from down anymore. Um, 
However, this occurred several times over the Inquisition, and every time that it was brought up that she was not remaining consistent, she would weasel out of the answer by saying either she was confused because they'd been at this for so long, or she didn't understand the question they were asking. Little side note, I don't know if you can hear the lawnmower going outside of my house. It's the first nice day we've had here in Pennsylvania. So I guess everybody converged and they're like, yes, we're all going to cut the grass in the same neighborhoods today. So my apologies. Anyway, back to Lizzie. So about this time was when the fishing trip came up. Um, if you guys recall, she was scheduled to go on a trip Monday. And Lizzie had claimed that while her father was supposedly napping, you can't see me making air quotes with my fingers. Um, she was out in the barn looking for sinkers and lines for the trip. She claimed on her way to the barn that she had stopped at their pear tree and picked a few pears before going to the second story loft of the barn to look for the sinkers. So police pointed out that this task should have only taken her a few minutes and that left a window of almost a half an hour where she was unaccounted for and could have been the same window of time where her father was being murdered. Now, Lizzie tried to explain it away by saying she sat down by the window and ate some of the pears up in the barn. This also caught their attention though, because everyone, including Lizzie, in that house had claimed that they had been ill that morning, yet she had suddenly felt well enough to eat some pears something's not really adding up here. I mean, most things in this story aren't adding up, but that especially. So police then wanted to move on to the issue of the murder weapon. They asked Lizzie if she knew of there being any hatchets in the house. She said she knew there was an axe in the cellar, but she wasn't sure about a hatchet. When questioned if she could recall any times where she could reference there having been blood on them, um, which I found to be a really strange question, but I, you know, I'm assuming it must have made sense to them back then. Lizzie referenced to her father's killing of the barn pigeons earlier in the spring. Um, and I think we got into that in the last episode about how Lizzie had been caring for these pigeons out in the barn and she had been keeping them as pets, but he thought they were a nuisance and were attracting neighborhood boys. So he proceeded to chop their heads off. Um, so there was that. Um, and this is where things kind of got interesting. So now we're going to talk about that whole issue that had happened five years prior with um, within the family. It was a real estate issue. So for me, this whole situation gave a little bit of a clearer insight into the type of personalities that Lizzie and Emma had. Because we hear a lot of the time about them being, oh, whoa, poor me, my father's rich, I don't have any money because he likes to live on the cheap and I can't stand that. But I, I think it went a little deeper than that. Um, I think in some ways they could have been kind of on the spoiled side, even though it wasn't outwardly seen. Um, so Abby Borden had a stepfather, Abby being the late wife who was also murdered with Andrew. Um, she had a stepfather who was selling her childhood home, and while the home didn't really have any kind of sentimental value to her, her sister was still living in this home, and if her stepfather decided he would, he, you know, would sell it, her sister wouldn't have any place to live. So when she told her husband, Andrew, about this, he bought the home from Abby's stepfather and gave it to Abby as a gift. Um, he put it in her name and everything. So... Lizzie and Emma found out about this transaction from a friend outside of the family, and this is where I felt like they were acting like spoiled children. 
Abby and Andrew were more or less making this purchase to protect Abby's family. But the girls were seeing it as Abby being given a monetary investment. And so they insisted they should be given property too for the same reasonings of familial relation. This was when, and I believe that we referenced this in the first episode, um, Andrew decided he would give them the house that he had owned with their biological mother, Sarah Borden, um, that they would then later return back to him um, in a sale, more or less, and received $5,000. So during Emma's questioning, it came out that while the property dispute had caused ill feelings, Emma was the one who was harboring a particular grudge towards Abby, not Lizzie, and also could only name the same two men that Lizzie had come back with as possible enemies to her father. And the reason we're not really getting into those two men is because there was never really much said about it. It was more or less a situation of um, once they had their sights on Lizzie, like that was it. She was gridlocked in. That was their suspect. There were a couple mentions here and there about maybe seeing a strange person throughout different times of the year, this black shadow figure man um, lurking around the property here and again. But nothing uh, concrete was ever really nailed down about this. Um, Bridget had maybe made a claim at one time, and then Lizzie had made more of the claims. Um, So that's why I didn't really want to get too much into it. Not to mention, there's really not a whole lot written about it. So we are now going to introduce Alice Russell to this story. Alice Russell was a friend of the family, more so Lizzie's, who was called into question. So Alice was the one who would tell police that no, Lizzie was definitely hostile about her stepmother. She at one point had been seen and heard telling a seamstress, quote, we don't have anything to do with her. She's a mean old thing and claimed they stayed upstairs most of the time. So at this point, There are several inconsistencies with Lizzie's account of the morning, and a picture is being painted of a severely divided household, and a final account also was made that Andrew Borden had been in the process of preparing to drop a will per John Morse's interview, and this was also corroborated with one of Andrew's lawyers that had discussed creating a will. However, he had died the same week he had planned to do this. So the day he died, the Monday previous, was when he had reached out to the lawyer and told him, I think it's about time, I'm at that age, that I need to start getting some affairs in order, and I'd like to come up with a will so that there are um, instructions upon my passing. Um, So from here, they placed Lizzie under arrest. Jennings, her lawyer, was present, and it was noted that Lizzie was extremely calm during the arrest process. She was escorted to the county jail, where she would spend the duration of the trial. While she was placed in a cell, just like the other inmates, she was granted special privileges, such as better pillows and brightly colored trinkets and papers for her cell. She was also able to order dinners from the local hotel rather than receiving prison fare. So I feel like a lot of people like to reference that Lizzie, you know, it must have been so hard her having to be in prison. She's the only woman in prison kind of at the time and yada, yada, yada. But this this was not prison like prison today. She she had extra rights and things about her that she really should not have had. To reference the book again, um, The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. Uh, during the duration of the trial, Lizzie's legal team made it a big point to kind of play up the 
how could a meek woman commit such an unspeakable crime ploy? She was often dressed in light feminine colored dresses with hats um, and even noted to be carrying flowers into the court on occasions. The preliminary hearing had begun with the testimony of the medical examiner, which was a very concise account of the wounds that both Andrew and Abby had suffered, um, followed by a brief stint of John Morris taking the stand, who relayed his account of events, and finally Bridget was the last to go. Bridget, just as she'd been in all the prior interviews, was very consistent in her story and concise about where she had been, um, what she had been doing during the time of the murders, and um, the prosecution felt that this really helped to solidify that there were inconsistencies and unaccounted for time in Lizzie's story. However, after the first week of the trial, it did come out and was made very clear that there was no actual evidence proving Lizzie had committed these crimes. Everything to this point remained very circumstantial. The prosecution had called on the pharmacist to testify that they did, in fact, see Lizzie the night before the murders trying to buy um, that acid. Um, remember the one that she had been saying she wanted to use to clean down a sealskin seal cape. I am so sorry that I cannot talk today. Um, she wanted to buy the acid for a sealskin cape. And he, in fact, corroborated this on the stand. A medical expert was then put on the stand and said that no poison had been found in either of the victim's stomachs, and he couldn't identify the murder weapon as there was no blood or human hair on any of the weapons that had been removed from the basement. During the closing arguments would be the first time that Lizzie displayed any kind of human emotion throughout this whole trial process. Um... As her lawyer was describing the friendship he'd kept with her father, Lizzie was said to have put her face on her hands and wept. They used their closing argument to reiterate that there was no direct motive or murder weapon provided by the prosecution, and they even used some of their closing statements to redirect the suspicion in Bridget's direction. The prosecution, in turn, used their own closing argument to further drive home the point of how the victims were killed and the empty window of time that Lizzie could not officially account for led them to wholeheartedly believe that she had a much bigger part to play in this whole situation than in the end, the jury before coming back with a probably guilty verdict, um, and the case was now due to be held in Superior Court because this was just the preliminary trial. Um, and Lizzie was going to have to wait out this second trial in prison once more. Per a legal educational article I found um, called The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Doug Linder, this was when the case really heated up. Um, at this point, the case was brought before a jury of 12 men. The most notable thing to happen during this was when Thomas Moody, who represented the prosecution, pulled off a blue piece of fabric um, that was reportedly owned by Lizzie in his opening statements and revealed Andrew and Abby's skulls to the courtroom. Now, this isn't like he pulled it off and there were two really gross, bloodied, severed heads sitting on the table. This was he pulled the cloth off and their skulls, which at this point had been, you know, soaked in acid and cleaned and all that, um had been given to him to use. Now, this resulted in Lizzie reportedly fainting for several minutes. 
The prosecution's intention was to show that this had been a crime of passion based off of the injuries that these victims had received. Um, but it really seemed to work against them as Lizzie had such a normal... God, I really can't talk today, guys. I am so sorry. Had such a normal and supposed feminine reaction. I think I was trying to squeeze together the word normal and feminine. So normanin? I don't know. Reminds me of Norman Bates. Anyway, now once they've moved on from this and heard Bridget's testimony, they then listened to testimony from Dr. Bowen again. Um, this was the same doctor that Bridget had been sent to track down by Lizzie. He explained that he had given Lizzie morphine to calm her down um, quite frequently after the murders had happened. And he did admit, in part, that that could have something to do with her inability correctly to recount the events that had happened. Um, I, I don't know about any of you guys. I've only had morphine one time. I actually um, went to the ER and I had had these severe stomach pains. I'd had to go, like, straight from work. They gave me morphine for the pain. I was so loopy and out of it after having that for the first time. I did not like any bit of it. I felt like I was super drunk and yet, like, could still see clearly. It was just a really weird situation. And I was only given a very minimal amount. So I can't imagine how Lizzie would have been able to really recall much of anything if she was on morphine frequently after this happened. And apparently this wasn't just her. Like, this was a whole um, epidemic back then of doctors prescribing morphine for, you know, God knows what at the time. Um, so once they moved on from Dr. Bowen's testimony and heard Bridget's, um, they then moved on to Alice Russell. Sorry, I lost my place. She was the same friend in the first episode who we discussed Lizzie expressing her fears about the family safety. Um, and Alice brought out more information during the second trial that the Sunday following the murders, Lizzie had brought down a blue dress and told her friend, I'm going to burn this old thing. It's got paint all over it and proceeded to do so. So remember how police asked Lizzie what she had been wearing that day? And she replied, a blue dress. But by afternoon, she'd changed it into a pink one. Weird, right? Right? Crazy. So Alice also brought forth some information um, and said that she had discussed the missing note at one point. Um, for you, those of you that don't recall, uh, Lizzie had allegedly said that Abby had received a note from a sick friend and she'd gone out to go and visit them. Um, hence her believing that she hadn't been there at the time of the murders. At least that was Lizzie's account. Um, so Alice and Lizzie were sitting down having this conversation and Alice had jokingly suggested Abby had burned the note. But Lizzie had apparently latched onto this and replied with, yeah, she must have which had been odd, um, seeing as no note was ever found and neither was any sick friend ever recounted. So, with all of this in mind, I feel like a lot of people will ask the question, okay, how could they have possibly found her not guilty? Because, spoiler alert, they find her not guilty. Um, and I feel like this is when the story is recounted a lot of the time, um, 
this little piece is glossed over, but let's discuss it as it'll give a little bit of further insight as to what follows. So it was ruled by the judge that while Lizzie did have inconsistent testimony during her hearings, it was more than likely a result of the morphine she was being given for the hysteria that, you know, they had said she was suffering from. So he expressly said her initial statements and interviews were not to be submitted into evidence. I'm sure a lot of you guys have already picked up, but what that means is every inconsistency she had in her story, everything that she said that just wasn't lining up, the prosecution could no longer use in court as a basis for why they felt she committed these crimes. It, it was literally thrown out. There was nothing they could say. There was nothing they could do. The judge had ruled this as a result of the morphine she'd be given. Do I think that the morphine maybe had a little bit of a part to play with her being confused? Sure, absolutely. I, I think it could have. However, I have to imagine that she wasn't on this for the entire time. Every medication, drug, whatever you have a come down from, and they were interviewing her practically constantly. So if that was the case, then how come all of it was inconsistent all of the time? That's, I don't know. I don't know. So everything Lizzie had said in her inquisition and the first initial hearing was not able to be submitted into evidence um, that the jury would later be able to review whilst making their decision. Um, however, I'm not sure that it really would have mattered in the end. The jury deliberated for only an hour and a half before coming back with a not guilty verdict. They expressed that the state had failed to prove guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt um, and what appeared to be only circumstantial evidence, um, and they could not convict considering that. So, this is something that I find interesting too, because remember, it was a jury of 12 men and back then, you know, a, a woman was not able to be seen as anything other than meek and quiet. And especially one of Lizzie's um, background, who was supposedly, you know, she was supposed to be a, a debutante, more or less. Which is, you know, something that leads me to think that these guys kind of already had their minds made up from the second she fainted in that courtroom after seeing her father and her stepmother's skulls. Um, because that is kind of as feminine a reaction as you can get back in that day and age. Upon her acquittal, Lizzie reportedly threw herself into her sister's arms and insisted that she wanted to go home. She packed up her cell um, before they took a carriage home. A few days later, after they returned, one of the jurors, I think this is so ballsy, one of the jurors had a picture framed of the entire jury and brought it to Lizzie, which is just bananas. Could you picture someone doing that from, like, the O.J. Simpson trial? Or, like, you know, the Casey Anthony trial? That just is... No. That's nuts to me. Who takes a picture of the entire jury to give it to the person that they acquitted? No. You don't do that, people. Come on. Do better. Ugh. Anyway. So... People thought that maybe Lizzie and Emma, who were now obviously very rich from the inheritance they received from their father, uh, would move away to New York, but they insisted that they were staying. Partly in turn, it was due to the fact that 
Lizzie knew she was a name known around the world now. I mean, papers were reporting on her trial every single day. Um, it, you know, it was an exciting piece of news back then. I mean, who could say anything like this had ever happened before? Um, and she knew that, you know, at this point, anywhere she went, she would be met with speculation and suspicion that she was a murderer. Um, but she felt that if she stayed where she'd grown up, she could hopefully, you know, return into people's favor because they, you know, knew her. They knew who she was. This was Lizzie. This was the woman who taught Sunday school and volunteered around the community and played treasurer and, you know, part-time mayor, you would think, with all of her plans and company and friends. But uh, this was a plan that very quickly backfired on Lizzie. Because the people of Fall River very quickly became leery of her presence in the town at all. And uh, this was how that famous nursery rhyme came to be. The one we all know and love. But let's go ahead and repeat it here for good measure. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. So, as we know, Lizzie and Emma did not stay in the home on 2nd Street. And rather, they bought a home in the neighborhood that Lizzie had been lusting after her entire life. Um, they bought a house in the hill. Um, they didn't sell the old house, however. They did hold on to it, I think, with the idea that they wanted to try to um, become property developer, sort of like their dad, and wanted to rent it out. You know, he did raise them. They knew, like, an investment when they saw it. I don't think this really worked out very well in their favor either because I don't think anybody wanted to rent out the home at least not at that time um not after knowing what had happened there so lizzie also went on to change her name and had people begin to refer to her as lizbeth rather than lizzie in a way of reinventing herself um during this time she also made friends with an actress named nance o'neill and reportedly was throwing parties and hanging around with a lot of thespian and actor types which back then was actually considered very lowbrow and not something that someone of the hill should be doing um emma was quickly concerned by this and reportedly argued with lizzie about this until it reached a point where emma could no longer stand it and ended up moving out and she never spoke to her sister again um because if you remember you know emma was always referred to as strong and steady and in the moment and there and you know that none of that was her scene lizzie was partying having a grand old time she'd just been in prison for like a year and a half she was out she was living her best life she was rich no she was having none of it so they had to i i would assume agree to disagree and emma moved out so during the initial trial where, you know, they said she was reportedly very cold and callous and very unemotional, um, Lizzie was said to have actually been a very good-natured and good-spirited woman throughout the remainder of her life. She loved animals, owned several herself, and she was often cited for treating her staff's children as if they were her own. Um, they even would refer to her as Auntie Borden, which I thought was interesting. I'd ne actually never heard of that before. Um, she died in Maplecroft on June 1st of 1927. She was buried in the family plot with her father, sister, and biological mother. Emma, uh, shockingly, had passed away and joined them in the plot only 10 days later. 
which was kind of interesting given the fact that she was uh, 10 years older than Lizzie. Um, little side note, I know there's other connections apparently to the whole 10 the whole number 10 between Emma and Lizzie. I can't recall all of them right now, but if you ever get the chance and go to Fall River, Massachusetts, do the Lizzie Borden tour of the house. It is so cool and so worth it. The tour guide I had was amazing. She was super sweet, um, very knowledgeable. Uh, but I do remember at the very end of the tour, she did mention there was like four or five different like little links of the number 10 to uh, Lizzie and Emma's relationship that were just kind of uncanny. So, do you think Lizzie was guilty? Um, I personally do. <laughs> I, I have no reservations about that feeling. Um, I, I just think there's, there's too much emotion. Um, you, when you put emotion and huge, huge monetary gain together... It's only going to lead to a recipe for disaster. I, I really think that that had a lot to do with it. I don't think any part of what Lizzie did was right. Nobody should be murdered like that, let alone by your daughter for something like that. Just for straight up greed. Um, but I think that's, you know, kind of the way the cookie crumbled. I don't think that there will ever be definitive evidence that will prove that she convict, you know, can committed Jesus God committed these crimes um but who knows maybe one day well guys that's where we're leaving this uh Lizzie Borden story I hope you enjoyed it I enjoyed researching it it got a little mind-numbing towards the end there I'm not gonna lie <laughs> um but yeah overall I I liked it it was cool um I think Next week, we are going to do the case of Phoenix Nets, for those of you that haven't heard of that one. Um, I wanted to do some, something a little off the cuff, something that's not quite as um, upfront in your face and, uh, you know, historically known. Um, because the last several cases have been kind of real notorious. Uh, and then the week after that, we are going to do something a little more paranormal. Because, again, I loved the one we did about Penhurst. And uh, I would like to mix in another one. Except that one will be um, a little true crime and paranormally. I think you guys will like it a lot. Um, again, I'm gonna, I know I mentioned it already. But if you would be so kind as to leave a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening to, it would really, really help, and I'd really appreciate it. I'd also love for you guys to tell me, like, what kind of stuff you'd like to hear. I know I love true crime. I know plenty of cases, but I also know that I don't know everything, and I would love to hear um, more lesser-known ones that deserve to be looked into, because I feel those are the ones that are the most important most of the time. Um, anyway, there's going to be some other cool stuff happening. Uh, I think we're gonna have a theme song here soon guys my cousin and I were talking last week and he's a DJ and uh, I mentioned him hey I I could probably use a theme song for my podcast and he said yeah okay cool give me till Monday I was like what so hopefully that's coming so that'll be really fun can't wait for that um and I've I'm hoping to keep up this consistent chain of every week so we'll see how it goes um but I hope you guys really love this episode. I really, really appreciate you all listening. Thank you so much. And have a great week. Later, Gators.